What's perhaps most remarkable about the global age in which we find ourselves is that it's now possible for two distant cultures to easily interact with one another. In ancient times, this was near impossible, as the physical distances between two different peoples were often too vast to cover without significant dangers. As such, maps and texts from this period are often filled with guesswork, depicting humans in such remote places as semi-mythical beings, with faces on their torsos, or else disjointed limbs jutting out from haphazard parts of the body. Still, that's not to say that such interactions didn't take place, as we'll see in today's episode. Upon first glance, it would appear that the Chinese and Greeks would have had little to no knowledge of one another in antiquity, due to the vast chasm that separated them both geographically and culturally. But what if I told you that they did in fact meet, under circumstances that are both strange and epic? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. In 1275, just four years into his grand journey across the Asian continent, the Venetian explorer Marco Polo arrived at a fertile plain between the Amudaria River and the Hindu Kush Mountains in what's now northern Afghanistan. It was while passing through this region that he happened upon the ruins of a magnificent city. When he questioned the locals about it, they provided him with the name, Umal Belad, which was the name Arab conquerors had ascribed to it some six centuries prior, meaning the mother of all cities. He learned that it had been a bustling, prosperous metropolis for generations, until it had ultimately been sacked by the Mongols in the early 13th century, at which time it was promptly abandoned. Now only a few scattered villages surrounded it, and Polo himself would later describe the scene in his travels as being sparsely populated with people walking, or else living amongst its crumbling ruins. Unbeknownst to him at the time, the Venetian explorer had happened upon the city we now know as Balkh, one of the many stops along the ancient Silk Road that had grown wealthy through trade with both Europe and Asia. Founded some 2,500 years before our own time, in around 500 BC, it was home to several peoples and societies in antiquity, until it was ultimately captured and absorbed into Alexander the Great's empire when the Macedonian Greek king stormed through the region in a war of conquest in the 4th century BC. At its height, Alexander's empire was the largest in the world, stretching from Egypt in the west to India in the east, the size of which would only be surpassed by the Roman Empire some three centuries later. But upon his death in 323 BC, it all fell apart. Having died without an heir, his generals bickered and fought amongst themselves as claimants to the throne. This resulted in the breaking up of this vast swath of land, with the establishment of four Hellenistic, that is, Greek kingdoms, scattered throughout southeastern Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, and Central Asia. Macedon, the original kingdom in northeastern Greece from which Alexander hailed, the Ptolemaic dynasty, which ruled Egypt, the kingdom of Pergamon in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and the Seleucid Empire in Central Asia. It was in this last sovereignty that our story truly begins. Of the aforementioned four kingdoms, the Seleucid Empire was the largest. Established by Seleucus I Nicator, one of those selfsame bickering generals, he proclaimed himself its first king in 305 BC, ruling for 24 years until his death in 281 BC. While stable during his reign, successive monarchs struggled to maintain control over the empire, as it was prone to infighting. One such rebellion broke out in 256 BC, when the provincial governor, or satrap, a title borrowed from the Persians of Bactria, Theodotos I Soter, declared his lands independent from the Seleucid Empire. After a year or two of bloody conflict, he emerged victorious, thus giving rise to the independent kingdom of Bactria, better known to contemporary historians as the Greco-Bactrian Kingdom, or simply Greco-Bactria, with its political capital being the city of Balkh. This sovereignty would mark the furthest east that the Greeks would ever venture in ancient times. 
As the Seleucid Empire continued to weaken and eventually disintegrate, its lands being divided and consolidated into other Central Asian powers, the Greco-Bactrian kingdom grew rich from Silk Road trade. These Eastern Greeks, quote-unquote, were soon establishing ties with such far-flung places, from the Greek perspective anyway, as Persia and India, as well as the nomadic peoples of the Eurasian steppe, such as the Scythians, an Iranian people whose metallurgy, particularly in gold, was quite desirable to Greco-Bactrian kings. Proof of such exchanges have been unearthed in the various kurgans, steppe burial mounds of the Scythian nobility, which contain the pottery, coinage, and even foodstuffs of Greek origin. With such mighty connections as these, it wasn't long before word of this new power player reached the ears of another, China. At around the same time that Diodotos I Soter rose in rebellion against the Seleucids, a man was born in China who would change the course of that country's history forever. He went by many names in his youth and early adulthood, but he's perhaps best remembered by the title of Qin Shi Wang, or Qin Shi Wang Di, meaning something along the lines of First Divine Ruler, as he'd go on to become China's first emperor. You see, China in those days was vastly different from the single, unified entity we know today. It was comprised of seven states, each ruled by a different king. These states were Chu, Han, Qi, Wei, Yan, Zhao, and of course Qin. The man who would one day be known as Qin Shi Wang was heir to the Qin throne, which by the mid-3rd century BC had emerged as the most powerful of the seven states. The only problem was that these independent monarchies were constantly at war with one another at the time, so much so that this period has come to be known as the Warring States Period. Upon assuming command of the Qin throne in 246 BC at just 13 years of age, Qin Shi Wang longed to one day bring about an end to the conflict by conquering each of the states and consolidating them under a single banner. The plan was ambitious, to say the least, and had never before been attempted in the country's already long history, but he was steadfast and determined. Thus, in 230 BC, at the age of 29, he set about on this crazy campaign. It took nine years, but in the end he emerged victorious, and, in 221 BC, the Qin dynasty, the first of the Chinese imperial dynasties, was established, with himself being crowned its first emperor. But Qin Shi Huang was a cruel, megalomaniacal, and increasingly paranoid ruler. One of his biggest blunders was the burning of some 200 texts simply because he felt them to be quote-unquote wrong or amoral. This was and continues to be seen as a crushing blow to Chinese literature, as several historic, religious, and poetic texts were likely lost because of it. Stranger still, the emperor soon became obsessed with immortality. So afraid was he of dying that he ordered physicians and scholars from throughout his empire to create an elixir that would grant him eternal life. When none could come up with a viable formula, they were all executed. Prescribed pills of liquid mercury by the court doctor may have only added to the monarch's insanity, and surely sped up his mortality, for, as we now know, mercury is poisonous and highly toxic if ingested. Needless to say, he ultimately died, not having found the elixir of life, in 210 BC, and was buried in an elaborate tomb that, because it contains liquid mercury, hasn't been earthed due to health concerns. With the first emperor dead and gone, the Qin dynasty fell apart. Though he had an heir, unlike Alexander the Great, this successor was ultimately deposed and killed in 207 BC, after just three years upon the throne. In its wake, a new dynasty arose, one that would usher in a veritable golden age for China, that of the Han, whose first emperor, Liu Bang, had led the peasant rebellion that had ousted the former short-lived monarch. This dynasty saw a flourishing of scientific and cultural advancements, the first of their kind in Asia, and in some cases the world as a whole. It was under Liu Bang's rule, for example, that the civil service was created, in which prospective candidates would take an exam and be placed in various positions to oversee governmental affairs. Clocks that used running water measured time, and the world's first seismograph was also invented. 
But the early days of the Han Dynasty were mired in conflict and turmoil, not within its borders, as with the Warring States period, but outside of them. A new threat emerged from the north at this time, the Xiongnu, a tribal confederation of nomadic, largely Mongolic peoples from the eastern Eurasian steppe, specifically the Mongolian Plateau, who by 209 BC had formed an empire of their own that threatened to topple the order and dominance of Han China. By the mid-2nd century BC, Xiongnu raids against Chinese border towns had grown so out of hand and become so frequent that the emperor at the time, Han Wu Di, or simply Emperor Wu of Han, decided to vanquish them once and for all. The only trouble was, though Han Chinese soldiers were indeed skilled and powerful in battle, they were greatly outnumbered by the sheer size and scope of Xiongnu armies. In addition, the latter's prowess on horseback proved far greater than that of the former, as they'd spent several centuries navigating the open grasslands they called home. Thus Han Wu Di knew he couldn't fight them alone, and in 139 BC, he sent an envoy, Wan Zhang Qian, to the west to forge an alliance with what the Chinese called the Yueji, a branch of the Scythian peoples of Central Asia. The Yueji, too, had a history with the Xiongnu, having been driven out of their ancestral homelands in the Tarim Basin of what's now northwest China by them several decades prior. With that, Qian set out, a man on a mission, but he'd return with far more either than he or the emperor could have bargained for. The journey west in those days, as was the case with the journey eastwards from Europe, was quite perilous and fraught with dangers. With rugged terrain that included mountains and deserts and temperatures ranging from the frigid cold to the scalding heat, the Chinese envoy certainly had his work cut out for him. In addition, the roads leading to and from China, particularly outside the imperial borders, were crawling with bandits, outlaws, and various other forms of scum and villainy, as Obi-Wan Kenobi would put it. On the way, as he later recalled upon his return to the Hong court, he had been kidnapped twice and robbed of some of his provisions. Still, after many weeks of travel, he arrived in Yueji territory, though the people who greeted him weren't in fact the nomadic Scythians he was expecting. There are two extant texts from the Han period that provide more than a sufficient amount of information about these strange people that Zhang Qian encountered within the Yueji's lands. They are the Book of Han and the Records of the Grand Historian, both of which are seen as pivotal historical accounts that shine a light on the events that shaped ancient China. According to these texts, as well as the accounts of Qian himself, these last of which were penned in 130 BC, the people he'd encountered were known as the Daiyuan, which literally translates to the Great Ionians. The envoy had in fact happened upon the Greco-Bactrian kingdom, specifically its northeastern edge, which was located in the fertile Fergana Valley that now straddles the borders of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Kyrgyzstan. Their population, he recalled, quote, numbered several hundred thousand living in walled cities of varying size, unquote. In in addition, they grew rice and wheat and made wine from grapes. But of all the wonders Qian saw in Greco-Bactria, he was most enthusiastic about the horses, which he described time and again as divine and heavenly. According to the Greeks, these horses were all descended from Alexander the Great's own steed, the mighty Bucephalus, as well as those of his generals. In short, they were swift and strong animals, ones that would surely grant the Chinese victory over the Xiongnu. With such tantalizing accounts as these, Emperor Han Wu Di wished to see these legendary beasts for himself, and, over the course of the next thirty years, would send frequent diplomatic envoys to Greco-Bactria every decade in the hopes of purchasing some of them. Here, the history gets a little muffled, as accounts from both the Greeks and Chinese implicate one another. In ancient times, diplomatic envoys were held to a certain standard, following a strict set of guidelines that was meant to show respect to the nation to whom gifts were being brought. Greco-Bactrian sources describe the emperor's subsequent envoys as rude and crass who showed little decorum towards them. On the other side of the aisle, particularly in the records of the Grand Historian, the Chinese claim that the Daiyuan did not conform to the proper Han rituals and behave with great arrogance and self-assurance because they believed, quote, they were too far away to be in any danger of invasion, 
Unquote. Whichever account one chooses to believe, tensions between the two powers soon ran high. Finally, during the final envoy, the Chinese, frustrated that the Daiyuan wouldn't relinquish their heavenly horses to their care, destroyed some of the tribute they'd brought with them, enraging the Greek noblemen. The envoys were subsequently killed, with the remainder of the treasure being distributed among the king and his court. When news of this insolence reached Emperor Han Wu Di, he was furious and vowed to seek revenge. He soon gathered an army of 6,000 cavalrymen and 20,000 infantrymen, largely comprised of young men from the borderlands along China's western frontier. To lead them into battle, he appointed one Li Guangli, the brother of his favorite concubine, the beautiful Lady Li, as general. Sometime in the autumn of 104 BC, they cast off for the Daiyuan lands. On the way, they stopped in various oasis towns along the Tarim Basin and Taklamakan Desert to gather supplies. When the citizenry refused, Li ordered his men to take the supplies by force. Though they were successful in a couple of instances, they were largely overpowered by the citizenry of these oasis towns, thus only obtaining limited supplies. These petty conflicts not only set Li's army back, but also greatly exhausted the men, who couldn't do much with so few necessities. Thus the general called off the attack, retreating to the frontier town of Dunhuang with only a fraction of the men with whom he'd started out. Upon Li's humiliating return, court officials expressed concerns over the campaign. Wishing to expend their available resources on the threat of the Xiongnu, they implored the emperor to reconsider this punitive expedition to the Daiyuan lands. Much to their surprise, he refused, fearing that failure to subdue and subjugate Greco-Bactria would mean a loss of Han prestige among the Chinese western border states. Instead, Han Wudi provided General Li Guangli with an even greater army as well as supply animals. And so, in the autumn of 102 BC, two years after the initial expedition, Li and an army of 60,000 penal recruits, that is, those recruited from prisons, and mercenaries set off for Greco-Bactria equipped with some 30,000 horses, 100,000 oxen, and a mix of some 20,000 donkeys and camels. With a stockpile of supplies this time around, the Han army had no trouble passing through the oasis towns of the Tarim Basin and Taklamakan Desert. Indeed, the only state along the western frontier to put up a fight was Luntai, now part of the Uyghur Autonomous Region of China, at which time the general ordered the population be slaughtered. From there they proceeded as planned, though by the time they'd reached the Daiyuan lands, a portion of the army had been lost to the rugged terrain as well as desertion. Both Greek and Chinese sources corroborate that Li Guangli and his men arrived in the city of Alexandria Escate, meaning Alexandria the Farthest, a city established by Alexander the Great himself back during his initial journey of conquest, and known to the Chinese as Ershi, at the southwestern end of the Fergana Valley in what's now Tajikistan. There the Greeks were waiting for them, anticipating a pitched battle in which they'd break the advancing Han siege. However, the Chinese forces had an advantage, the crossbow, a weapon that wouldn't make its way to Europe for another eight or nine centuries. With this distraction, Han engineers set about diverting the Sirdaria River, the city's primary water source, completely cutting off its supply in the process. Though the Greeks fought valiantly, a 40-day siege ensued, in which the Greek general, a man that survives to us as Jian Mi, and clearly taken from Chinese sources, was captured by Li's men. Thus the Greco-Bactrian generals retreated within Alexandria Escate's innermost walls, where they began negotiating terms of surrender. Their first order of business was to kill their king, a man named Wu Guo, again obviously taken from Han accounts, and sent his severed head to Li. With this done, they offered the Chinese as many heavenly horses as the enemy saw fit to take, as well as supplies for the withdrawal and return journey. Luckily for them, Li accepted the terms, with the latter retreating with some 3,000 horses and a veritable payload of supplies. 
In a strange and surprising turn, however, the Han general didn't conquer or incorporate the vanquished Greco-Bactrian state into Chinese rule. Instead, as they just killed their king, he appointed one of their nobles, a man referred to in the records of the Grand Historian as Mei Kai, as their new monarch. And they all lived happily ever after and let bygones be bygones, right? Well, not exactly. If there's anything that history as well as life and living have taught us, nothing's ever tied up quite as nicely and neatly as all that. Shortly after Li Guangli's retreat, the Greeks rose up against their new king, Mei Kai, thinking that he'd collaborated with the Chinese because Li had appointed him to their throne. With him ousted, that is, killed, the former king, Wu Guo's brother, a man referred to as Chan Feng in Hong sources, ascended to the throne, where he was beloved by all. Not wishing to upset the Chinese further, he symbolically sent his son to the Han court as a hostage, whereupon he was promptly sent back with envoys bearing gifts. With that, the two powers made peace, never to wage war with one another again. As for Li Guangli, he ultimately led the Han forces against the Xiongnu. But in a surprising turn of events, he defected to their side upon being defeated by them, even going as far as marrying one of their princesses. He was later killed in a dispute with another Han defector, and though Xiongnu raids would continue for some time, the Chinese would ultimately be successful in keeping them at bay. The Han dynasty would last for another three centuries, and proved so influential to Chinese history and culture that it would give its name to the primary ethnic group in that country. As such, the moniker of Han Chinese is still used officially to this day. As for Greco-Bactria, infighting would continue even after Chan Fang's death, eventually splitting the state in two with the formation of the even more famous Indo-Greek kingdom in what's now northeastern Pakistan and northwestern India. This latter sovereignty was unique in that it combined Ionic Greek with North Indian architecture, and its people were a mix of Greek polytheists and Indian Buddhists. The Indo-Greek kingdom would prove to be the last bastion of Hellenism in the East, even outliving the Greco-Bactrian kingdom from which it had initially split. While the rest of the Greek-speaking world, in the West anyway, had fallen under Roman rule, the Indo-Greeks held out until they were ultimately defeated by a nation of Indo-Scythians in AD 10. While there presumably were Greek communities scattered throughout Central Asia following its demise, they were ultimately absorbed into other cultures, losing their distinctly Hellenic identity over time. In our global age, the idea of two distant cultures like those of Greece and China interacting hardly seems unique or unusual. But in the time of the so-named War of the Heavenly Horses, it was surprising indeed. Still, it shows just how tenacious and determined the ancient Greeks were as a people, opting to not only settle in the land set aside for them by Alexander the Great, but also push even further into the interior of the Asian continent, so much so that they'd ultimately go head-to-head -head with one of the greatest powers the world has ever seen. As for the war itself, it remains one of the more unusual conflicts in history, and calls to mind Richard III's own immortal words in battle. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Shakespeare's tragic antihero may have meant the words metaphorically, but for Emperor Han Wu Di, they'd be clearly taken seriously. A resounding xie xie and efharisto for listening this week. I hope you found this topic just as fascinating as I did. Until a few months ago, I'd never known of this most bizarre conflict, nor that two of the ancient world's leading powers had gone head to head as they never had, or would, ever again in antiquity. If you enjoy quirky, unusual topics like this one and enjoy learning about them, you might want to consider supporting this podcast. You can do so by going to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company, all one word, and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and especially sharing also helps spread the word, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Join me again next week for, for perhaps another strange topic right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.